Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents. If you feel at any time you need support, please contact your local crisis centre. For suggested phone numbers for confidential support, please see the show notes for this episode on your app or on our website. On March 2, 2011, a frail-looking Steve Jobs took to the stage of an arts centre in San Francisco. Dressed in his iconic black turtleneck sweater and jeans, the Apple CEO addressed a sea of cheering reporters to unveil Apple's newest creation, the iPad 2. Nine days later, on March 11, crowds swarmed outside of Apple stores throughout the United States with customers hoping to get their hands on the latest model iPad. It was no different at a Maryland store located on Bethesda Row. Nestled amongst exclusive boutiques and trendy restaurants, the Bethesda Apple Store did a roaring trade on the night of Friday, March 11. Employees were run off their feet selling the iPad 2, in addition to serving other customers doing a spot of late-night shopping. After closing, a few Apple employees stayed back to get things in order. Just after 10pm, the manager on duty, Lara, not her real name, was tallying up receipts at one of the tills when she suddenly heard a series of strange banging sounds. Lara asked one of the two security guards on duty to help her identify the origin of the noise. Separately, they scoped out the two-storey Apple building as the noises increased in volume and frequency. After a few minutes, Lara followed the sound and realised it was coming from behind the wall that Apple shared with the store next door. She walked over and put her ear up to the wall. In addition to banging and thudding noises, Lara could also hear grunting and what sounded like something heavy being dragged. Just then, Lara heard a hysterical female voice emanating through the wall. She raced upstairs to retrieve her senior manager who followed her to listen. He could also hear a female who now sounded as though she was gasping for breath. A scream then pierced the air. Lara asked if she should call the police, but her manager didn't think it was serious. To him, it sounded as though someone had just received bad news. He told Lara, quote, I think it's just drama. The security guard agreed, and the three of them went back to work. Meanwhile, the banging and thudding noises continued next door along with the occasional scream. Approximately nine minutes after Lara first heard the noise, the female voice yelled, God help me, please help me. Shortly after that, it went quiet. Nearly one hour later, just after 11pm, Lara was the last Apple employee to leave for the night. She locked the front door to the Apple building and went home, oblivious to what had unfolded in the yoga store next door.
Friday, March 11, 2011, was a change of routine for Jaina Murray, who worked as a salesperson and supervisor at the Lululemon Athletica Yoga Store in Bethesda. The 30-year-old didn't usually work Fridays, but she'd agreed to swap shifts with a co-worker. Given the release of the iPad 2 at the Apple Store next door, Jaina knew it would be a busy evening with extra foot traffic passing by. But she was only too happy to help. Jaina had been at the yoga store for two years and loved working there. The muscular, five-foot, five-inch-tall Jaina could be seen doing cartwheels and dancing with customers during quieter shifts, bringing with her a sense of energy and joy wherever she went. Jaina arrived at the Lululemon store two hours early to catch up on some personal work. She took a seat in the back of the store, opened her laptop and put on some music. Her boyfriend, who lived in Seattle, was coming to visit her the following weekend and Jaina wanted to make sure all her university coursework was up to date. Intelligent and determined, Jaina was completing her thesis to graduate with a master's degree in business administration and communication. Jaina was so impressed by Lululemon's business model and philosophy that she jumped at the chance to use the company as the basis of her thesis. This included writing a crisis communication plan that Lululemon staff could implement in the event of an internal emergency. The staff at the Lululemon headquarters in Vancouver, Canada were thoroughly impressed with her plan. Once Jaina graduated, she hoped to move to Seattle with her boyfriend and then score a job at Lululemon headquarters. As Jaina worked on her laptop, she was interrupted by her co-worker, who presented her with a bottle of wine as a token of appreciation for swapping shifts. Jaina happily chatted to her and some of the other employees on duty. Exuding a positive attitude that afforded her many friends wherever she went, Jaina lived life to the fullest. It was this mindset that made her the perfect employee for Lululemon. She abided by one of the popular motivational quotes often seen advertised throughout Lululemon stores. To live every day as if it was your last. 28-year-old Brittany Norwood was also having a lovely Friday. She spent the morning at a yoga class before meeting a friend for lunch. Afterwards, she and her friend got their nails done and Brittany then rushed to Lululemon, making it just on time to start her 3pm shift. Brittany had only been at the Bethesda location for a few weeks, having transferred from another Lululemon store but so far she was enjoying it. Described as having a wide smile, welcoming nature and good sense of humour, she was quick to make friends. Like Jaina, Brittany was also a determined woman. She had previously managed VIP guests at a local intercontinental hotel, but had taken a considerable pay cut for the opportunity to work for Lululemon. Her goal was to use the yoga store as a stepping stone to her dream career of becoming a personal trainer and opening her own gym. As Brittany arrived at work that Friday, she was closer to realising her dream than ever before, 
having secured a job interview at the local gym the following week. Friday nights were typically busy for the Lululemon store and three salespeople were usually rostered on. However, one employee had called in sick and nobody was available to cover for her, leaving Jaina and Brittany to hold down the fort on their own. They didn't mind as they felt confident they could handle the workload. As the queue of people waiting to enter the Apple store next door increased, it remained busy at the yoga store. The line at Apple was still out the door when Lululemon closed at 9pm. Jaina and Brittany completed the closing protocol for the store. As the more senior of the two, Jaina then switched off the lights, set the alarm and locked the door. At 9.45pm, the women said their goodbyes and went their separate ways. The next morning, Lululemon's store manager and owner, Rachel, made her way to work at 8am. Neatly dressed in workout gear and orange running shoes, she sipped a coffee as she passed a few people waiting for the Apple store to open. When she reached the front door of Lululemon, she was displeased to discover that it was unlocked. Rachel swore under her breath at Jaina for not locking up properly. However, As she stepped inside, it immediately became clear that something terrible had happened. Merchandise and clothing was strewn throughout. Mannequins were lying on the floor and a flat screen TV had crashed and shattered on the ground. Rachel sidestepped a display table that had been moved and then stopped. A bloody shoe print appeared in front of her. Outside the store, a young man named Ryan sat on a public bench absent-mindedly scrolling through his phone. He had missed out on an iPad 2 the night before and had arrived at the Apple store early to ensure he didn't go home empty-handed. Ryan looked up as Rachel made a hasty exit out of Lululemon on her phone to the police. She asked Ryan if he had seen anyone enter or leave Lululemon that morning. He hadn't, but volunteered to check inside the store while they waited for police to arrive. Ryan made his way past the clothing racks and to the change rooms, where the bloody shoe prints increased. Following their trail, he called out. There was no response. After walking through a half door at the back of the store, Ryan came to another door that led to a rear hallway and emergency exit. A large pool of blood had seeped underneath the door. Ryan tried to push it open, but there was something heavy on the other side. Forcing it open just enough to stick his head through, Ryan discovered the body of a woman propped up against the door laying face down on the blood-drenched ground. Blood was splattered high up the walls. A length of rope was tied around the woman's neck and a red toolbox sat on her back with multiple blood-soaked tools surrounding her body. Panicked, Ryan made his way back outside. On his way, 
he passed two staff bathrooms that he hadn't noticed on his way in. A pair of legs protruded from one of the doorways, tightly bound at the ankles by zip ties. It was the body of another woman, lying on her back with her wrists bound above her head. She was covered in wounds to her face and upper body with blood coating her clothes. The black yoga pants she was wearing had been ripped open at the crotch and a large white rock the size of a baseball lay beside her in a pool of blood. Within minutes, two officers arrived and made their way to the rear hallway. Once they'd established that the perpetrator was no longer in the store, one of the officers assessed the woman lying in the back hallway. It was Jaina Murray. It appeared she had been deceased for some time. The officer then raced to the bathrooms where Brittany Norwood lay on the floor. Her eyes were closed, but she was still breathing. The officer cut Brittany free from the zip tie restraints and paramedics soon arrived to take her to a nearby hospital. Investigators from the Montgomery County Police Department began their inquiries. Heading the case were detectives Jim Drury and Dimitri Reuven. Signs of a struggle were evident throughout the store. The registers were open and receipts were scattered behind the counter. Three small safes had also been opened and their contents emptied, indicating that robbery had been a motive for the assault on the two women. Meanwhile, Brittany underwent emergency treatment and regained consciousness. She had sustained numerous lacerations to her stomach, chest and legs and had shards of glass lodged in her back. There was a large wound to her forehead and her right hand was covered in defence wounds from fighting off her attacker. Still in shock and pain, she began to explain what had happened to her and Jaina the night before. The ordeal was so brutal that the officer who took down the statement couldn't believe what she was hearing. At 9.45pm, Jaina closed up the store and the women went their separate ways. As Brittany walked to the nearby subway, she realised she'd left her wallet behind. She didn't have keys to the store, so she called Jaina to explain the situation. Coincidentally, Jaina had also accidentally left her laptop behind, so she told Brittany she would meet her back at the store to retrieve their belongings. They both arrived at Lululemon just after 10pm. Jaina opened the door and deactivated the security alarm, but Brittany couldn't find her wallet anywhere. The two women searched the rear of the store for about 10 minutes before giving up. Jaina gave Brittany her Metro travel card so she could get home and promised she would look for the wallet again in the morning. Just then, They realised they'd forgotten to lock the front door behind them when they came inside. A man dressed head to toe in black clothing, including gloves, a hoodie and a ski mask, snuck out from behind a clothing rack. He hit Jaina over the back of the head with a metal bar. Suddenly, 
Another man clad in the same attire appeared from a different clothing rack and grabbed Brittany by the hair. He began cutting her with a sharp object, warning that he'd slit her throat if she said a word. The other man took Jaina to the rear hallway while Brittany's attacker dragged her to the bathroom. He yelled racial slurs at Brittany and called her a quote, dirty slut. He threw her to the ground and slid open her yoga pants at the crotch. Brittany sobbed as she recounted the brutal rape that followed, which included the use of a coat hanger from the store that had serrated edges to keep the garments in position. At one point, the attacker hit Brittany on the head with a hard object, presumably the large rock found by her body causing her to drift in and out of consciousness while the assault continued. All of a sudden, Brittany's attacker demanded she be quiet. Brittany listened closely and could hear voices coming from the Apple store next door. She prayed that someone would intervene and rescue her, but nothing happened. When the voices died down, The masked man pulled Brittany to her feet and ordered her to open the cash registers and safes. As she complied, Brittany could hear Jaina screaming from the rear of the store. Her screams became quieter and less frequent before stopping altogether. The next thing Brittany remembered was being stretched outside by a paramedic. Brittany recalled that both of the men were of medium build, but one was significantly taller than the other. Jaina's attacker was approximately six feet tall, while the man who assaulted Brittany was about five foot five and had no trouble overpowering her five foot three, 120 pound frame. From their voices, she guessed they were young white American men, but their black attire had covered most of their features. Brittany blamed herself for the ordeal, believing it wouldn't have happened if she hadn't forgotten her wallet. After 48 painful minutes of recounting the night's events, she asked, Is my friend okay? Brittany's statement helped the crime scene investigators piece together a timeline of events. As Brittany's attacker forced her to open the registers and safes, both he and Brittany had tracked blood throughout the store. The size 7.5 New Balance shoe prints belonged to Brittany, meaning the size 14 Reebok sneakers belonged to her attacker. Authorities believed that the attackers had watched the two women go back into Lululemon from afar and, seeing an opportunity to burglarise the store, had followed them inside seconds after they entered. Lululemon offered a $125,000 reward for leads resulting in the conviction of the men responsible. The chief of police addressed reporters outside the store, giving a description of the two suspects and pleading for witnesses to come forward, adding, We only have one eyewitness, and she's been through a lot. Lara, the employee from Apple, was interviewed later that day. 
She broke down in tears when she discovered a woman had been murdered and another severely injured in an assault that she had largely dismissed. Jaina's murder had occurred a mere eight feet from where the Apple employees had stood listening to her screaming. The Lululemon store didn't have indoor surveillance, however there were CCTV cameras positioned outside the rear of the Apple store. These cameras captured the back car park shared by Apple and Lululemon. As detectives began watching the previous night's recordings, nothing initially stood out. But at 11pm, just after the attack took place, two men entered the frame. They were both dressed entirely in black. The taller of the two wore a ski mask rolled up like a beanie and had a backpack slung over one shoulder. The shorter man was talking on a phone. The pair seemed in a hurry as they walked from the direction of Lululemon and out of view of the cameras. The detectives went frame by frame trying to get a clear picture of the men's faces, but it was too blurry. Regardless, they were certain these were the two suspects they were looking for. As detectives focused on identifying the two masked men, another lead came in. As detailed in the book The Yoga Store Murder by Dan Morse, the day after the attack, Jaina Murray's two-door silver Pontiac G5 was found in a car park three blocks from the Lululemon store. Given that there was plenty of available parking much closer to the store when Jaina returned at 10pm, this was puzzling. An officer came forward to report that he'd been patrolling the car park at around 12.30 on the night of the attack, 90 minutes after the two masked men were captured walking away from Lululemon. As he drove past Jaina's Pontiac, he noticed the headlights were on and someone was sitting in the driver's seat. The officer considered pulling over to talk to the driver but changed his mind, thinking they'd likely just parked for a quick cigarette. The officer couldn't make out any details of the person in the driver's seat and continued on his way. However, two hours later, he returned to the car park to find the Pontiac in the same spot with its lights still on. This time, the officer couldn't see if there was anyone in the driver's seat and once again, he drove off. He patrolled the car park a third time an hour later to find the Pontiac vacant with its lights off. Detectives considered that Jaina's murderer may have been the person spotted in the driver's seat, but they were at a loss to explain why. Word of the murder and assault of Jaina and Brittany spread around town and shocked the public. It was unlike anything seen in Bethesda where local police were usually concerned with minor crimes in the affluent neighbourhood. Women who would normally be more than comfortable walking alone along Bethesda Row began travelling in groups and arming themselves with pepper spray in case they were next to be targeted. A makeshift memorial adorned the sidewalk outside of Lululemon as distressed locals lay flowers and cards, one of which read, 
Two beautiful souls, one lost, one deeply hurt. The police tip line was abuzz with concerned locals phoning in their suspicions on who was responsible. Many could be dismissed almost immediately, but there was one name that kept coming up over and over again. Keith Lockett. Keith was a 40-year-old homeless man who was well known to those who lived in Bethesda. With a reputation for getting drunk and verbally abusive, many local women were terrified of him. Authorities questioned the manager of a local restaurant where Keith typically visited every day, only to find out that he hadn't come in on the Friday or Saturday when the attack took place. The manager of a nearby homeware store recalled seeing Keith walk past Lululemon on the Friday of the attack. He'd had a backpack over his shoulder, which struck the manager as odd because he'd never seen Keith wearing a backpack. He'd been in the company of two other men whom the manager had never seen before. A former amateur boxer, Keith had a long rap sheet that included robbery, assault and battery. It didn't take long for officers to locate him. He was in a hospital out of town being treated for facial injuries, including a swollen eye. His clothes were covered in spots of dried blood. Detectives rushed to the hospital, speculating that Jaina or Brittany may have injured him in self-defence. It made sense that he sought help from a hospital out of town to fly under the radar. Keith's bloodied clothes were taken for DNA analysis, and once he was medically cleared, he was taken to the Montgomery County Police Station for questioning. He strongly denied having any involvement in the attack, but admitted being near the Lululemon store when it took place. As detailed in the book The Yoga Store Murder, Keith Lockett told the detectives that he had also been assaulted on the night of the attack, hence his facial injuries. He was assaulted by a, quote, short Spanish dude who hung out with a taller African-American man. From gossip on the streets, Keith knew the two men had recently paired up and were robbing stores in Bethesda. Keith then became emotional. He told detectives that he was standing across the road from Lululemon when, quote, The black dude and the Spanish dude robbed the lady and cut her. I seen it with my own eyes. Detectives didn't know what to make of Keith's statement. He was confused, sometimes incoherent, and told the officers that he suffered from schizoaffective disorder which required medication. Over the course of the interview, Keith's story changed multiple times, and he later claimed to have seen a gang of young teens riding skateboards out of the store. Workers at a homeless shelter who often supplied Keith with meals and a place to sleep conceded that he could be rude, but they didn't for one minute suspect him of committing the attack. The blood on Keith's clothes was determined to be his own. Furthermore, none of his DNA was found at the Lululemon crime scene. With no physical evidence linking Keith to the attack, 
he was ruled out as a suspect. Meanwhile, the medical examiner working on Jaina's autopsy assumed that she'd been a victim of a motor vehicle or bicycle accident, given that her face and scalp were covered in so many bruises, lacerations and wounds. Jaina's face was so disfigured by various injuries that her features were unrecognisable. Lacerations on her face continued to her torso and back and ranged in size from nearly pinprick to four inches. The crotch of Jaina's leggings had been slashed and an area of blood suggested to the medical examiner that, like Brittany, Jaina had also been sexually assaulted. Fibres of rope found in Jaina's clenched hands matched the piece of rope tied around her neck, indicating that she had struggled to free herself. However, her death wasn't caused by strangulation, but from a one-inch stab wound sustained at the base of her skull. Presumably caused by a knife, the stabbing had severed her brainstem. In total, Jaina had sustained 13 skull fractures and at least 331 separate injuries, of which 152 were to her head and 105 were defensive wounds. Jaina was a chronic nail biter and even though she had fought hard against her attacker, her nails were too short to have collected any DNA from her perpetrator. Jaina's wounds had been caused by various objects which had been taken from in the store and many from the toolbox that had rested on her back. These items included a wrench, a foot-long metal bar, a metal display hook, a hammer, a box cutter, a Buddha statue and an exacto knife, all of which were found around Jaina's body. By the evening of Monday, March 14, three days after the attack, Brittany had been released from hospital and was resting up at home. Her parents had flown in from across the country and she was surrounded by her eight siblings, whom she was extremely close to and who dropped everything to support her. They were extremely worried about Brittany as she'd become withdrawn and was hardly sleeping. Friends also rallied around her, sending her messages of love. Desperate for more information, detectives Drury and Reuven went to interview Brittany once more. Brittany struggled to talk as she relived the violent assault again. She recalled how the two men were laughing as they carried out the burglary, rape and murder, describing it as like a scene out of the violent video game Grand Theft Auto. Brittany paused. There was something she had been keeping to herself out of sheer terror that the masked perpetrators would return. Bursting into tears, Brittany told the detectives that her attackers knew where she lived. Brittany explained that the two men were rifling through the contents of her bag when they found two separate utility bills showing her name and address. She was now terrified that they were going to pay her a visit. The detectives reassured the Norwoods that it was highly unlikely her perpetrators would return, but warned them to be on the lookout for any suspicious behaviour from people in the street. 
As the detectives prepared to leave, Brittany's brother Chris asked to speak to them outside. He asked them why they thought the killers had spared his sister when Jaina had been so savagely murdered. As detailed in the yoga store murder, one of the detectives asked Chris what kind of person Brittany was. He paused before saying, My sister is a very secretive person. On the same day that Brittany was being interviewed at her home by detectives, Sergeant Craig Wittenberger entered the Lululemon store to continue his investigation. One detail continued to plague him. Why were only Brittany's shoe prints and one other pair found in the store when there were two masked men involved in the assault? Furthermore, why were there no bloody shoe prints outside the store? either at the front or back entrance. As Sergeant Wittenberger re-examined the front of the store, he noticed a table had been pushed up against the wall in all the commotion. When he slid it back, he found that the table had drawers underneath. Opening one, he pulled out a pair of shoes, men's Reebok size 14 sneakers. Their tread was an exact match to the larger bloody shoe prints left in the store. The smaller shoe prints stopped abruptly in front of a sink at the back of the store, indicating that whoever wore them had removed them in an attempt to clean them. A strange pattern of scalloped blood marks then trailed from the sink back to the table drawer where the Reeboks were found. Analysis showed that the marks were from shoelaces that were wet with diluted blood. Every time the person stepped, the ends of the shoelaces flicked on the floor and left a small mark. Detective Reuven questioned store manager Rachel about the Reeboks. She told him that the shoes were owned and kept at Lululemon for their male customers to try on when buying pants. That way, any alterations that needed to be made to the length of the pants could be done in store. It was a major breakthrough. A forensic examiner concluded that the Reebok prints appeared to have been staged, as the print patterns were inconsistent with normal movement. As detailed in Murder in the Yoga Store by Peter Ross Range, Detective Reuven considered this evidence and told his shocked colleagues. The footprints never left the store because the killer never left the store. On Wednesday, March 17, six days after the murder, Brittany arrived at the police station having agreed to provide hair and fingerprint samples to help with the crime scene analysis. Brittany was taken to an interview room where she was told that the technicians collecting the samples had been delayed. While they waited, Detective Drury pressed Brittany to recall the night's events one more time. She retold the story nearly word for word, sobbing in parts. When she finished, Detective Drury asked if she had ever been in Jaina's car before. Brittany replied no.
the detectives knew she was lying. Forensic examination of Jana's Pontiac had revealed blood on the car's stick shift, the steering wheel and the inside of the door. DNA analysis showed the blood belonged to two people, Jana Murray and Brittany Norwood. A black Lululemon cap in the back seat had a bloodstain on the inside in the exact same position as the wound that Brittany had obtained to the centre of her forehead. DNA analysis confirmed it was Brittany's blood. Detectives wondered if Brittany could have been the person the patrol officer had seen sitting in the driver's seat after the attack. This speculation was not enough to place Brittany under arrest, and so she was permitted to leave the station. The next day, Brittany's brother Chris called the detectives to let them know that his sister had something she wanted to get off her chest. Brittany soon arrived at the station with Chris and one of her sisters by her side. She told detectives there was something she had been keeping from them because she was frightened. She had in fact been in Jana's car on the night of her murder. Brittany claimed that midway through the assault, her attacker ordered her to move Jana's car which was parked outside the store. He didn't offer any explanation as to why, but as detailed in Murder in the Yoga Store, Brittany told detectives, quote, They said that if I was to pass anyone and open my mouth, I can consider myself dead and that one of them would be watching me the entire time. I remember seeing a cop and I was just too scared to even flag him down. Brittany said she parked the car a few blocks away and walked back to Lululemon, passing pedestrians whilst covered in blood. Nobody noticed her injuries and she was too scared to ask anyone for help. Detectives Drury and Reuven were beyond dubious and figured that Brittany was trying to cover her tracks. They questioned why she didn't keep driving to safety. She explained that her attackers knew where she lived and she didn't want them to come back. No matter how hard the detectives tried, Brittany didn't budge from her story. Eventually, they gave up. They summoned Brittany's siblings into the interview room and said, Brittany killed Jaina. Brittany's siblings listened in horror as Detective Drury detailed the extensive evidence that pointed to Brittany Norwood as the sole perpetrator of the assault that killed Jaina Murray. Any credibility to her story about two masked men was dispelled when the men captured on CCTV were identified as two kitchen hands in a nearby restaurant hurrying to work. The men were interviewed by detectives and ruled out as suspects immediately. It was purely coincidental that they happened to walk into the CCTV surveillance just after the attack had taken place. The week of forensic investigations into the store had provided ample evidence that pointed to Brittany's guilt, with the analysis of Jana's car being the final piece of the puzzle. 
Further interviews with the Apple employees who heard noises coming from the Lululemon store revealed they heard not one, but two female voices on the night of the attack. They seemed to be arguing loudly before the screaming began. Just before one of the women could be heard yelling, God help me, another female voice was heard screaming, Talk to me, don't do this, what's going on? From the very beginning, even Brittany's brother Chris had found it strange that Jaina had received such brutal injuries, while Brittany had received superficial injuries that only required a short stay in hospital. Brittany tried to explain this to detectives, saying that she had been spared from the brunt of the attack because her rapist said she was, quote, fun to fuck. However, Brittany was examined by a nurse trained in treating victims of sexual assault. She found there were no clinical signs that Brittany had been raped, nor any physical injuries that would be expected following a rough sexual assault with a coat hanger. There were also no traces of semen found at the scene. Even though Jaina's pants had been slit, she hadn't been sexually assaulted either. The area of blood near her genitals was actually pooling from another wound on her body. In her original statement to detectives, Brittany claimed she had not been near Jaina's body once the two had been separated. However, Three days after the attack, Brittany provided another statement in which she claimed to have just remembered that her attacker had pushed her onto Jaina's bleeding body in an effort to psychologically torture her. Detectives believed Brittany had made up this story to explain why traces of her blood were found on Jaina's body. It was determined that all of the injuries Brittany sustained could have been self-inflicted. The lacerations to her upper back were only in positions that someone could reach with their own hands. They were all superficial and uniform in depth and appearance, indicating Brittany hadn't struggled when they were being inflicted. Brittany had claimed she'd been cut with various instruments while she had her clothes on. However, there were no lacerations in any of her clothing. When Brittany was found, her hands were ziplocked together high above her head. There was no reason for this, as she could have lowered her arms any time. It seemed to detectives that she was putting on a show. Analysis of the zip ties used to restrain her wrists and ankles revealed bite marks and DNA where Brittany had used her teeth to secure them herself. A two-inch laceration between Brittany's right thumb and forefinger was originally labelled a defensive wound caused by a knife. However, analysis of the laceration indicated it had been caused by a knife slipping in Brittany's hand as she stabbed Jaina and lost her grip. Because the attack on Jaina had been so brutal and left her face so disfigured, it pointed to someone who knew Jaina and had immense feelings of hatred towards her, not a random burglar. It begged the ultimate question. Why would Brittany murder Jaina?
Brittany Norwood came from a family of high achievers. She performed well in school and received good grades, but it was on the soccer field that she really shone. Brittany received an athletic scholarship at Stony Brook University, where she was named the team's most valuable player. With dreams of becoming a social worker, Brittany was also studying sociology and psychology. But in 2004, she was asked to leave the university after multiple friends accused her of stealing from them. Brittany broke down and admitted to it. She promised not to do it again, however she didn't stay true to her word. She later stole $300 from one of her sister's purses during a family gathering, although she wholeheartedly denied doing so. Although she had told family and friends she had graduated, Brittany left the university before completing her degree. She secured a job working at the Willard Intercontinental Hotel, situated a stone's throw from the White House. Things were looking up for Brittany. She was well-liked and quickly promoted, once winning the title of Employee of the Quarter. However, Brittany also had a secretive side. In 2007, she broke up with her boyfriend of 18 months. The following year, she broke into his house and stole various items, including jewellery, blank checks and car keys. Britney's ex filed a restraining order against her, claiming she had also been physically abusive towards him and he feared for his safety. Britney violated the restraining order within two weeks and an arrest warrant was subsequently issued but never executed. Authorities were busy with more serious crimes and the warrant expired after a year. With the goal of becoming a personal trainer, Brittany left her job at the hotel and started working at the Lululemon store in Georgetown, DC. Shortly after, a co-worker accused her of stealing money from the tills. In January 2011, Brittany was fired after her boss accused her of abusing her store discount. Brittany disputed this, and in the end, management at Lululemon decided not to fire her. Instead, she was transferred to the Bethesda store. As detailed in the book The Yoga Store Murder, after meeting up with her future co-workers, Brittany sent one of them a text message, which read, You have such a solid team. I know it'll be a great experience. Over the coming weeks, several employees at the Bethesda store noticed that certain items were missing. When these employees confronted the store manager, she checked the roster and noticed that Brittany had been working each time that something disappeared. Two days prior to the store attack, at a weekly leadership meeting which included Jaina Murray, the team huddled together and discussed how they were going to catch Brittany in the act so she could be legitimately fired. They joked about setting up a nanny cam inside the store. In the end, the team decided that the best course of action would be to announce to all staff the possibility that a thief was amongst them and then see what happened. Before their co-workers left on Friday, March 11, Jaina commented, I have to close with the thief tonight. Do you think I will catch her? 
Jaina and Brittany worked happily together that evening, but when it came time to lock up, Jaina asked to look inside Brittany's bag. It was store policy to do so. When Brittany opened her bag, Jaina spotted a pair of Lululemon yoga pants with tags attached, but no store receipt. Brittany denied stealing them, claiming she had bought them earlier in the day. As the computer system had already been shut down for the night, Jaina told Brittany not to worry. They would sort it out later. Then they left the store. On her way to her car, Jaina called the employee who Brittany claimed sold her the yoga pants. The employee denied doing so. Jaina called her boss Rachel, who told Jaina not to worry about it. Now that they had caught Brittany in the act, Rachel planned to dismiss her the following day. Just as Jaina began driving home, her phone rang. It was Brittany who had lost her wallet and needed Jaina to let her into the store. As detailed in Murder in the Yoga Store, after being let inside, Brittany likely asked Jaina what was going to happen now that she had been found with stolen merchandise. Although the details of the conversation aren't known, their escalating voices could be overheard in the Apple store next door. Forensic analysis showed Brittany first attacked Jaina in the back storeroom by hitting her on the back of the head with a metal bar. Jaina attempted to fight back, but the violent attack continued. The final blow was from a knife kept in the back room of the store. Jaina had parked her car in a no-standing area right outside the store, thinking she'd just be running in for a few minutes. Knowing that Jaina's car would draw attention there, Brittany rummaged through Jaina's bag until she found her keys. She drove Jaina's Pontiac to a parking lot three blocks away, where she sat to think about what to do next. Had the patrol officer investigated when he drove past, he would have caught Brittany covered in blood. Brittany returned to the store and stood in the huge amount of blood that had pooled around Jaina's body. She then walked bloody shoe prints around the cash registers and safes before replacing her shoes with the men's Reeboks kept in the store and repeating the process. Brittany then washed both pairs in the back sink. She put her new balance running shoes back on and walked the Reeboks back to the drawer in the table. As she walked, her own shoelaces left little marks of diluted blood. Brittany then threw clothes from the hangers and toppled over mannequins to make it appear as though a struggle had taken place. At some stage, she slit the crotch of Jaina's pants to make it seem as though she had been sexually assaulted. With the scene complete, Brittany then inflicted several cuts to her own body, cut open the crotch to her yoga pants, restrained her hands and feet, and lay on the bathroom floor. All she had to do then was wait for someone to find her. Brittany's brother and sister sat in shock as Detective Drury listed the evidence pointing to Brittany's guilt. 
They did not believe she could unleash such a brutal assault resulting in murder over a pair of stolen yoga pants. Detective Drury was upset for the Norwood family as he considered them lovely and cooperative people. Brittany's father had even invited him to go fishing once the investigation was over. The detective himself struggled to come to terms with Brittany's guilt, telling her family, quote, I did not want to believe it at first. I did not want to believe it. On Friday, March 18, one week to the day since the attack, Brittany was arrested for first-degree murder. The day of the arrest coincided with the Jaina's funeral. Over 200 people gathered to say goodbye to Jaina, including the founder and CEO of Lululemon. As Jaina's parents drove to the chapel, they received a call from detectives informing them they had made an arrest. They were horrified to learn the person who killed their daughter was Brittany Norwood. Following Brittany's arrest, the state prosecutor met with Jaina's family to see if they would accept a plea deal instead of going to trial. The plea bargain entailed that Brittany would serve 15 years of her sentence and then become eligible for parole. Jaina's family refused to accept this and a trial date was announced. Ten days before the trial, the judge dealt a blow to the prosecution. They would not be allowed to give evidence regarding the telephone conversations between Jaina and Rachel just prior to the murder in which Jaina told her boss she had caught Brittany stealing. Classified as hearsay, this ruling was critical as it meant that the prosecution could not argue a motive for Jaina's murder. Brittany's trial began on October 24, 2011 in the Montgomery County Circuit Court in Rockville, Maryland. Over 200 exhibits and 25 witnesses were called, including the Apple Store employees who recounted hearing Jaina's cries for help. The prosecutor conceded that Brittany had played her part very well. He admitted that had she discarded the men's Reebok shoes instead of returning them to the drawer and left Jaina's car parked in its original location, Brittany may have gotten away with murder. In his opening statement, Brittany's defence attorney stunned the jury and onlookers when he cut straight to the point and admitted Brittany's guilt, saying, There was a horrific fight, and during that fight, Brittany Norwood lost it. Jaina was killed by Brittany. There was no point in maintaining her innocence. The evidence against her was too overwhelming. Rather, Brittany was seeking to be convicted for second-degree murder instead of first. On November 2, 2011, the jury deliberated for only 21 minutes before finding Brittany Norwood guilty for the first-degree murder of Jaina Murray. As both families cried at the verdict, Brittany remained still and silent, showing no emotion. Less than 24 hours later, Jaina's parents went shopping at the Bethesda Lululemon store that had since reopened following their daughter's murder.
Her father David told CBS that there was an important reason for their visit, saying, Nothing will start until we pass the first day of the new normal we're searching for, so this was the appropriate location. Jaina's mother added, We have always had Lululemon gifts under the tree for Christmas, and we decided this year was not going to be any different. Brittany was sentenced two months later on January 27, 2012, with over 200 spectators crowding the courtroom. Jaina's family spoke openly about the impact that her murder had on their lives, with her brother Hugh saying, March 12, 2011 was my family's September 11, 2001. Nothing will ever be normal. Nothing will ever be the same. Jaina's brother Dirk said that he and his two sons draw pictures and we write notes and we burn them so they can rise in the smoke up to heaven. Jaina's murder had a profound impact on his two young boys and he told the courtroom that instead of checking the closet for boogeymen before bed, they check for Brittany Norwood. Brittany finally broke the silence that she'd maintained for the entire trial, begging for mercy and a chance of parole. In tears, she said, For the Murray family, what do I say when your daughter's gone and I'm the one convicted of her murder? I know what I say today won't take the pain away over the loss of Jaina. I hope for the Murray family, someday you'll be able to find forgiveness in your heart. I am truly sorry. To illustrate the horrific nature of the assault and murder committed by Brittany, an emotional judge told the courtroom that one night he went home and banged his fist against a table 300 times. This was to mimic the hand movements of Brittany as she attacked Jaina. It took him over eight minutes. He told Brittany, You mutilated this woman, and with every blow you had a chance to think about what you were doing. You reveled in the gore, and the lies that you told afterward were incredible. You're one hell of a liar, ma'am. Addressing the families, the judge was overcome with emotion as he said, We don't pick our families, but frankly, if I had to pick a family, I'd want either the Norwoods or the Murrays. Brittany was then sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Jaina's family clapped and cheered as the sentence was read out. Outside of the courtroom, Jaina's father said the apology from Brittany was too little too late and just a last-ditch effort to have her sentence reduced. Brittany appealed her conviction on the grounds that her initial interviews with detectives should have been omitted from the trial as she hadn't been read her Miranda rights. The appeals judge dismissed this, saying that Brittany was initially interviewed as a victim, not a suspect. 
Jaina's murder continued to impact staff at the Apple store next door, with manager Lara relocating to another store. The security guard who was on duty the night of the murder felt immensely sad about his role in the night's events. Having previously worked in rough neighbourhoods, it never crossed his mind that something more than an argument between two people was happening in the yoga store. Had he been working in a more dangerous location, he would have acted on the noise. Jaina's brother, Hugh, was serving in the military at the time of the murder and had left Iraq to be with his family in the wake of the crime. When he returned to Iraq several weeks later, a parcel was waiting for him. It was from Jaina who had mailed it shortly before she was killed. As detailed in The Yoga Store Murder, Hugh opened it hesitantly, aware that it would be the final communication he would ever have with his sister. Jaina had sent him a running cap with a greeting card that listed things that didn't work on their own. Chips without dip, macaroni without cheese, me without you. Inside, she had signed off, Take care and be safe. Love you and miss you. Jaina. In the wake of Jaina's murder, a stained glass window was erected over the doorway to the main entrance of the Bethesda Lululemon store in her memory. The colourful mosaic featured the word love emblazoned in red cursive script. It became a local landmark known throughout town as the Love Window. In December 2017, the Lululemon store relocated to another vacant lot on Bethesda Row. Unable to keep the stained glass window, Lululemon shipped it to Jaina's brother Hugh, who told NBC Washington, It means a lot to us as it represents Jaina. We definitely wanted to preserve that and have it in our home. As a means of preserving Jaina's memory and the impact she had to those who knew her, Jaina's family started the Jaina Troxel Murray Foundation. Still in existence, this foundation provides scholarships to those in financial need with the hope that recipients will be afforded the same opportunities that Jaina had to succeed in life. Jaina's memory lives on in a video she posted to YouTube three months before she was murdered. In the clip, Jaina can be seen living her life to the fullest by going bungee jumping to celebrate her 30th birthday. The video is accompanied by the song Learning to Fly by Tom Petty and shows Jaina as she and her family would want her to be remembered. Full of energy, joy and positivity.